Good morning. Well, uh, here we go. Somewhere. Um, God bless you for being here, uh, especially on uh, Gillespie Fair weekend. Uh, we'll put extra points for you in the big book uh, for being here this morning. Um, where's Chris? Is Chris not in the room? He's. <laughs> Uh, Chris Lorette, Jackie's husband, uh, they're on lead guitar. Uh, I hired him as youth director years ago in Lampasas, and uh, and he was just not very far removed from Chicago, and uh, he wanted to do something on a particular weekend. I said, no, we can't do it. Uh, that stock show weekend. And he had the blankest look I've ever seen. <laughs> And I had to explain to him what Stock Show Weekend means in Texas and uh, how it's not a demonstration of stocking shelves at Walmart, okay? (laughs) All right, can we say amen for the rain we got this last week? Amen. Yeah, amen. Um, Okay, so sermon title, Dinner Invitations. And in the scripture, you see that one Sabbath day, Rabbi Jesus is invited to a dinner party given by a very prominent member of the synagogue who was also a member of what we might call the traditionals party or the Pharisees. And what a great dinner party that must have been, right? A very famous guest, Jesus, invited to dine by a very important host. Who wouldn't want to have been invited to that party? It would have been the invitation of a lifetime to get invited. But as we see from the very first verse, it's a setup for Jesus. The traditionalists are watching Jesus closely to see if he's going to do something that they would consider in their interpretation as breaking the rules. However, as you can expect, Jesus is on to them. First, he heals a man from what is, in my version, it calls it dropsy. I've never quite understood exactly what that is, other than it's a kind of a congestive heart failure kind of thing, if I understand it right. But he does it on the Sabbath, and that breaks the rules, in their opinion. Healing is work, and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But Jesus shames them by challenging them to consider that if doing acts of mercy on the Sabbath would truly be breaking the rules, that if liberating someone from a a, a, a chronic illness that eventually will kill you on the Sabbath would truly displease God. They remain silent on the issue. Then Jesus tells two parables, or kind of more like, they function more like proverbs, really. The first one is how to behave when you have been invited to a dinner party, and the other is how to behave when you're the host and you're the one doing the inviting to the dinner party. In the first one, Jesus has been observing how the guests are jockeying for position near the head table, Um, which is natural, I think. Who wouldn't want to sit next to Jesus, right? Who wouldn't want to sit at the head table at that kind of a dinner party, right? Who doesn't want to sit next to the president of the university, right? Or the billionaire business innovator 
or get to sit next to the famous movie star who's telling everyone insider Hollywood gossip. You don't want to sit at the back at the kids' table, do you? I understand that in the White House, there is a staff member whose primary job is to figure seating charts for state dinners and receptions for important people because it matters who gets to sit next to the president, who gets to sit next to the first lady, who doesn't. There's a rather famous event uh, with President Teddy Roosevelt who won the Nobel Prize uh, for brokering a peace agreement between Japan and Russia. And they had been at war, they stopped fighting, but they absolutely could not come to an agreement with each other. They just, just so despised each other. And so he invited them to come to the United States. Uh, they all met at a port, not Washington, D.C., because nobody wanted to stay any longer than they had to. We're going to come ashore, and then we're going to get back on the boat and leave. And there was endless conversation and debate about who was going to sit next to who. Who was going to sit by the president, who was going to sit, you know, where are the Japanese going to sit, where are the uh, Russians going to sit. And so what Roosevelt finally did was he took all the tables and chairs out of the room. And he made everybody just stand until they worked out an agreement. Who gets to sit at the head table? Who doesn't? right? It's natural, I think, uh, to want to be invited. Um, no matter how shy we might be, we, we do, I think, in our heart of hearts, um, love to be welcomed. We love to be honored. But Jesus says that when you go to a party, don't try to sit at the head table. Someone more important than you might come along, and then the host will guide you out to the card table in the hallway where the kids are sitting. And you will stew in your own humiliation, right? Uh, Many years ago, Brenda and I lived one year on the East Coast, and we were going to go camping up in Maine. And uh, we stopped in New Haven, Connecticut to check out Yale, okay? Little Texas Aggie, my tea sipper wife, okay, we're at Yale, okay? And we go into this restaurant. And I said, I want a table for two. And the maitre d' says, no, uh, you have to have a tie and a coat, and your wife needs to be wearing a dress. And he promptly kicked us out. And my wife um, rarely gets angry, but when she does, and it's that righteous indignation kind of angry, it is a beauty to behold. Okay? (laughs) I mean, she's pacing on that sidewalk. You know, our money doesn't work here. We're not good enough. I'm like, well, this would never happen at College Station, I'll just tell you that. (laughs) Now, that's a more extreme example, but you know when you're not welcome, don't you? I mean, we're Southerners. We're, We're taught to be nice to people we hate, right? And you maybe have known when you were in a group but you didn't really belong to that group. Uh, it's called eighth grade. <laughs> right? Or maybe a Sunday school where there was just some sort of intuition. Everybody was nice, but that wasn't your class. Or maybe even a church where you were 
treated civilly, but you knew you really weren't invited. But maybe, says Jesus, if you walk in and sit at the back of the room, the host might just come and take you up front to be honored by all. Which sounds like a good strategy, right? And is that all it is? Is Jesus just teaching us some sort of reverse psychiatry strategy to make ourselves look good? Or at least, at the very least, avoid embarrassment? Or, as usual, could Jesus be trying to get us to understand something deeper, more important than just who looks good and who doesn't? Being embarrassed or not being embarrassed. The key is in verse 11 where Jesus concludes this part by saying, For everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, what does that mean? Does Jesus mean humble as in, I'm not good enough to be here? Am I supposed to walk in the room and and imagine I'm not good enough to be here? Or maybe it's something more like, I'm going to walk in and not assume that I'm better than someone else. That's different. Then Jesus says to the host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, a feast, a banquet, really. And bear in mind, in that time, a banquet might be a once-a-year occasion. You don't have refrigeration. You don't have HEB. To put on a banquet is a huge, expensive, complicated thing. And to get invited, to get to eat meat, which you usually don't, okay, because it's too expensive and you don't have a refrigerator, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back so that you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. And although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So, instructions on who to invite to the party. Just who do we invite? Who do we invite? Which implies we have to make a decision on who we don't invite, right? Well, here's the first challenge of Jesus' guidance. Who do we usually invite to our dinner parties? Who do we usually invite into our house to sit at our table? Well, usually people from our own socioeconomic level. Uh, People maybe you went to the same school or you have more or less the same education level, right? Or maybe similar work vocations. People who generally share your values, your tastes, your general background. In other words, people you're comfortable with, right? And that's understandable. That's natural. Which might be why some people, if you got them to be absolutely honest with you, they'd rather spend Thanksgiving with a few friends than their relatives. Because the relatives will drive you crazy, but the friends will be fun to be with, right? We get to pick our friends. So the poor, he says, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Remember in that culture, there's no Social Security or Medicare. There's no safety net. So if you are crippled or lame or blind, you're probably a beggar hardship on your family for sure if your family will even have anything to do with you so we're supposed to invite them okay 
Let's be honest. What if they're not clean, literally? What if they mess up our furniture? What if they spill some coffee on that white couch you just bought? What if they say something embarrassing or complain about something about your house that's a little insulting? Or maybe after supper they fire up a cigarette or worse in your living room? Or are they going to ask to borrow something? Are they going to want me to loan them some money? Well, that's endurable on an occasional basis. But it's more than that, okay? If we invite them in to eat with us, if we sit down at a table together with all the, please pass the green beans, and do you want some more tea, and do you want some gravy for your pork chops, then something fundamental has shifted, okay? They are no longer an issue, right? The poor, that's an issue, right? They're no longer an issue. You know their names. You know a little history. They know your name. You've been talking. You've been breaking bread together. You're eating together. They're no, they now belong to your group. Do they not? They're no longer outsiders. You've made them insiders. The them has collapsed. The us and them has collapsed. Now it's just us. We're in a relationship. Which is why the rule keepers are always getting mad at who Jesus eats with. They don't care who he preaches at. But they care profoundly about who he eats with. Because he's making these unacceptable people us. Huh? I had a pastor friend that was pastoring a church in an urban area, and they, they, had a, uh, they had a homeless ministry. And I think it was Sunday morning, and Lake Travis, uh, Travis Park, uh, he said they would feed them breakfast on Sunday morning. Okay? And yeah, that's cool. We're feeding the homeless on Sunday morning. But then they decided instead of making them go down a buffet line, let's give them a little dignity because they, they lack everything, including dignity. And so let's, let's serve them like at a restaurant. Let them sit at a table and we'll serve them. And then we're going to sit down and eat with them. And he said, that's what changed everything. He said, I don't know if it changed the homeless, but it sure changed that church. Uh, it's no longer us and them. It's just us, right? See how scary it is? Can't we just write a check to a charity and not get involved? So here's the second problem I see. When you give a dinner party, it costs you something. Does it not? You have to spend money on food. You have to clean the house. You make sure the bathroom's acceptable. You close the doors to the rooms. You don't have time to tidy up. It costs you to be the host. It costs your time, your stress, your energy, and your pocketbook. And so, let's get real honest, okay? What if someone... What if someone we fundamentally disagree with 
What if someone, if someone who belongs to the wrong party, has the wrong political views, who lives their life in some fundamentally wrong way, some lifestyle that just, just doesn't seem like an acceptable lifestyle? Hmm? I mean, maybe we don't wish them any harm especially, but can't they just eat with people they're comfortable with? Wouldn't they be more comfortable? I mean, if we really push this, if these people are wrong, then that makes us right. And the very nature of being wrong is to be unacceptable. Because they're wrong. Can't be both. Am I going to spend my treasure, my time, my stress, my energy, my home, my white couch with the coffee stain now on those who are, well, they don't deserve our hospitality. Now let's push it real hard. Let's get to what this text really finally gets to. In that culture, the poor and the lame and the blind were considered wrong before God. They were religiously unclean. It's not that their poorness or their lameness was wrong before God. But obviously, their very being was wrong. Otherwise, they wouldn't be poor or lame. If they were acceptable to God, God wouldn't make them poor or lame. So they must not be acceptable. They must be living in sin or else God wouldn't let that happen to them. They can't go to the temple. Huh? They can't go to the temple. They're unacceptable. They're obviously out of God's favor. Otherwise, God would not have made them that way. And to whom is Jesus telling this to? To the Pharisees, the religiously right people. They are at the dinner party because they are right before God. And Jesus is daring them to invite those who seem to be wrong before God. Who do we invite to the party? Now, if you think that's just a first century issue and not a real big deal in our culture, then you need to read Dear Abby every day. Okay? Do I have to invite my stepdad to the wedding? What if my uncle shows up at the reception and he's going to be a mess? How can we nicely tell him he's not invited? Do I have to go to this wedding because I don't like this person anymore? But I don't know how to not go and not hurt their feelings, blah, 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 every week, right? Do we not sort it out all the time? Who's right enough and who's wrong enough that we don't want to be involved? Now, right now, that seems to be the question before my beloved but fractured and dysfunctional Methodist denomination. It seems to me that that's finally what we're about. Who gets invited to the party and who doesn't go in peace we wish you well but sorry you're not on the guest list nothing personal but if you would choose to live the right way and worship the right way and believe the right way then you'd be on the list but you're not until then and then they want us to vote on it am I going to vote on who's invited now, I was at a meeting last week, and they asked me if there was a lot of energy in our church over this issue, and I said, 
Not really. We're just desperate to get our pews back. <laughs> and we've got, we've got other priorities. Ugh. How do we work through this? How do, how do we be faithful to Jesus and, and get it out of, this, yeah, out of the in-between of this shoving match that wants us to land on one side or the other and decide who's in and who's out and who's welcome and who's not and, and not feel either guilty by it or burdened by it? And, and the burden of doing what I know Jesus is telling me is the right thing to do, but it's just too hard. Well, here's a way to work through it. First of all, do you deserve an invitation to the party? And just what did you do to deserve it? And I don't know. Maybe we all do in certain ways. I mean, y'all do a lot of good things. We all do a lot of good things. Maybe we think we're not perfect, but we're at least not one of them. Jesus is at a dinner party. But he's on his way to the cross. He's the guest of a host who is hoping Jesus says or does something that will show that he's a fake Messiah after all. They don't like him. He got invited to the party. They're being nice. They don't like him. He's in a room full of people who try really hard every day to do the right thing. And they're going to help make sure he gets tortured and killed. He's on his way to the cross where he'd be beaten, humiliated, and tortured for political and religious reasons. His own people will reject him. Those who are not his people don't care. He's on his way to the cross to die and redeem all who don't deserve it. Even those people at the dinner party who think they do deserve it. It's been said that religion is the idea that if I behave and do the right things, then I'll get my reward. And even if I do the wrong thing every once in a while, if I'm really good at repenting, then I'll still get what I want. But if I do the wrong things, why should I be rewarded? It makes no sense, right? But Christianity is the, the radical, counterintuitive, outrageous claim that in the cross of Jesus Christ, you today is complicated as you are good and bad you are already invited to the party a party of life a party of living the kind of life we all want to live a life worth living everyone falls short everyone is loved but it took a cross. It was a party throne that was infinitely expensive for God. I've been reading Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God. I highly recommend it. He tells a story about a lady that was attending his church. And she said, I grew up in a church where basically I was taught if you're good, God will be good to you. And if you're not good, well, it's not going to go well. And she said this idea that I'm, I'm just loved, I'm just accepted even when I'm unacceptable. She said, I've never heard that before. 
She said, but it's good. It's scary, but it's good. And he said, why is it scary? And she said, well, if I have to do A, B, and C to get my reward, then once I do A, B, and C, well, then I've done it. And God's not going to have a problem with me, right? But if God sacrificed everything because he loves me that much, he might ask me to do anything. Scary. Good. I have a relative that I've known since... 1974 uh, he's on hospice uh, I was sitting by his bed yesterday he made a joke about heaven and hell he's always been uh, agnostic at best he, he rejected Christianity or at least orthodox Christianity years ago he made a joke about heaven and hell which meant, I think, he wasn't really joking. He was really worried about it. But I made a little small talk and left. I, I was in a hurry. I needed to get back to church so I didn't have time to talk to him about his very soul. Maybe I was just scared. I don't know. Why did I not share the amazing good news that in spite of it, you, even doubting you, were invited to the feast? And miraculously, I am too. Insider that I am, sitting at the head table most of the time, sinner, cowardly, feet of clay, still get invited and you crazy scary good news oh my gosh we might end up doing just about anything amen